This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Space Oddity. Hello, my name is Cody Half Moon, and you're listening to Star Stuff, a podcast about all things science, space, and wonder. Today, we are joined by our lovely co-host, Haley Osborne. Hello, everybody. (laughs) And Todd Gonzalez, our education manager here at Lowell. Hello. Todd runs a program. uh, It's really cool. And just getting off the ground again now that Lowell Observatory is open to the public. It's called Lowell 42, and it's taking place here at Lowell Observatory on April 16th. Our featured speaker for this event is Ed Finn, who's with us today as well. Hi, Ed. Hi, everybody. So uh, just to start out really quickly for some context, um, Todd, tell us a little bit about Lowell 42. And I really want you to get into why it's named Lowell 42, because I love this. Yeah. So Lowell 42 is kind of a nod to Douglas Adams' uh, novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. And if you remember (laughs) in that book, uh, they built a computer to answer the ultimate question. What is the meaning of life? the universe and everything. Yes. And sort of in a comedic way, the computer came back after years of thinking and computing and the answer was 42. Um, (laughs) But the low 42 sort of, it plays off that, but you know, what we realized, you know, as we have people looking through telescopes at night, uh, they'd ask these really deep thought provoking questions um, that, you know, would take a supercomputer really to to start (laughs) to delve into these answers. And so, um, we thought it might be fun to have a talk series that sort of uh, orbits around these big questions that may not have easy answers to them um, and and sort of at the crossroads of the humanities and sciences. And so that's where Lowell 42 uh, got its start and its name. And so I'm really excited to, to start uh, kicking these off again. And I'm super excited that Ed Finn's going to kick off our first one after two years. I'm super excited that that's the reason it's called Lowell 42. Because I was <laughs> hoping that was the reason, but I didn't really believe. I thought it would be something yeah. else. So you made me really Yeah. Happy. Too good to be true. You don't want to ask. You just want to assume it's the best possible answer. Mm-hmm. And Ed, I think you're a very appropriate guest to start off this series. And I I love that we're bringing Lowell 42 in with the podcast as well, because we love to muse about all things um, imaginable and unimaginable at times. Um, So this is a great fit. And Ed, so I don't uh, spoil it by by saying the wrong thing. I'm really excited, though, to get into your background. Can you tell us about this cool center that you founded and some of the things that have inspired and interested you? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for uh, inviting me to the podcast, and I'm delighted and honored to help you bring Lowell 42 back to life after this long dark age. COVID. <laughs> yeah. Everybody sitting in our the before room. times. So really looking forward to all of that. Um, so I run the Center for Science of the Imagination at Arizona State University, and the center has a, kind of an unusual mission for a research outfit at a a big university. Our mission is to inspire collective imagination for better futures. When we do think about the future, a lot of us feel really apathetic. That's, you know, eh, or 
uh, it's hopeless. It's doomed. Everything is going to be terrible. And nihilism and, is intoxicating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, there uh, is a lot of despair, especially among younger people. People who are interested in, in climate futures, uh, and so that's a real problem. Uh, or people say, "Well, it's not my it's not my job. You know, I can't do anything about the future." There's some people over there in Silicon Valley who are going to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's some people in white lab coats, or maybe it's some people on Capitol yeah. Hill. They're like, what can I do? I can't do it. Right. I'm just trying to pay my bills over here. Yeah, right. right. I, can't, I, can't, I can't. The future is a luxury, right? I can't think about the future because I have to worry about today. And so uh, these are all really uh, dangerous, problematic relationships for us to have with the future because they, they disempower us. You know, and they end up giving those choices to other people. We're sort of seeding our own agency over the future. And so what we try to do is inspire a sense of agency and responsibility. I think that if you want to get to better futures, you need to start by telling better stories about the future, stories that are more inclusive, that are more inspiring. But most importantly, to get people, get everybody to start telling more stories about the future. It's not like we're here and we're going to build some better crystal ball and you know, tell everybody <laughs> what's happening. It's that we want to model a different kind of relationship that is about agency and responsibility, but also about playfulness and creativity and imagination and mm-hmm. uh, take, you know, finding the joy in the world we're living in and thinking about the things that we want in the future. And in it. practice, what we do is we try to bring lots of different interesting people together to start to do this kind of technically grounded positive futures thinking. So we'll bring science fiction writers and artists and scientists and engineers How and fun. historians together uh, to collaborate and imagine different futures in all sorts of different ways. We do a lot of uh, sort of books and science fiction collections. We do uh, sometimes immersive experiences or world building that has some, not, not a, you know, an output that might be like a, a VR experience or a short film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, increasingly, we're trying to think about how do we do this where it's not just us and a group of really amazing experts and artists that we bring together, but how do we uh, empower local communities to start imagining their own futures, things like that. Well, we'll have to get you on the podcast more often, Ed, and some of the <laughs> yeah. amazing uh, partners you have. Honestly. It's so much fun. So that's, that's a, a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do. I think that imagination, or at least how how Ed is framing imagination and the importance in like education, and um, it's a big mission at Lowell to inspire awe and creativity and imagination and a love of science here. And as our education manager, based on what Ed has been saying about the importance of this sort of vague but profound concept. Do you see that in uh, your programming with schools in Flagstaff and in the outreach that you do that you could maybe as a follow-up on what Ed was saying? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, I find myself fortunate that I'm in a job where I feel like imagination is a huge part of, you know, lesson planning. But I, you know, you mentioned, um, Ed, you mentioned world building. Um, and it's it's really how curriculum is to me. You know, we're building a, a, a world where kids are the co-discoverers of these things we're teaching them, like Newton's first law and second law, and um, 
and you know uh basically these kids are learning topics that you know they had never seen before and so you know i feel like at that at that edge of what you know and what you would like to know in that boundary is where we really need that imagination to carry us you know that step forward to to start asking questions and start finding answers i mean I really feel like it's a it's an important part in education, and um, I don't know. It, you know, it's something I feel like we, we as kids we we have we're experts in we're experts right. in imagination as kids, yeah. and you know somewhere like you know grow out of it. We feel like we grow out of it, or or you know maybe we just have a different relationship with it um, as we get older. Yeah, I mean it's amazing to hang out at the. Giovanni Open Deck Observatory, where they're like the the six telescopes, so you get a lot of like people talking. I'm sure you know Haley as an educator there can give some insight on that. But just the few times I've been up there at night for events, it's amazing what you'll hear kids say when they look through this telescope when they see like their imagination has a foundation because it's limitless when they look through these scopes. Yeah, and it's it's incredible because like when they're looking through the scopes and everything, kids just have the best questions, you know? And sometimes I feel like as adults, we're like nervous to ask questions because <laughs> we're kind of expected to like know things. But uh, a lot of times, like the stuff we're talking about here, it's not a common knowledge, you know? So having kids around is great because they kind of start uh, asking questions, which opens it up for everyone to start asking questions, you know? So mm-hmm. They're great icebreakers. They <laughs> are. That kids will come up with. Yeah. They have some of the hardest questions too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> um, speaking of like imagination with students, what kind of specific programs do you guys help uh, or do you guys have that help make this happen at ASU? Like... Uh, this whole inspiring imagination and agency within students. Do you have any like special talks or uh, exhibits, things like that? We do a wide range of things for different audiences and based on, on different projects. So we have a couple of things that we regularly do, but we, we a lot of our work is really project-based. So one of the regular things we do right now is we, we, we have, do programming and public events, uh, but that also changed because of COVID. We used to do this great <laughs> science fiction TV dinner series. We haven't quite gotten back to that yet. We're still scratching our heads about getting everybody together to eat food and watch a TV show, but we'll probably bring that back sometime soon. Um, but we're doing this, uh, we're doing some online events and one of them is called Skill Tree. So that's talking about video games as a way of thinking about different futures. And we'll have a few different people together to talk about that. Um, so we do we do these public events. Uh, we also partner with lots of different groups and institutions. So right now, uh, over the past year, we we were working with the Smithsonian Institute on uh, futures for the for museums. And so we worked with these different teams of curators and research for, researchers from different parts of the Smithsonian institutions, all of their different you know museums and and um, sort of uh, archives to imagine oh, different cool. futures grounded in in their work. And I haven't gotten a chance to see this yet, but I'm so excited that our work is part of this big futures exhibit at the Arts and Industries Building in the Smithsonian in DC. So we're connecting with this, you know, this museum audience there with families and people who might go to that museum. Uh, We also 
that our part of our contribution was commissioning a couple of science fiction writers and artists to create vignettes, create short stories, setting these different futures, and then have posters from these you know future museums as well. And all of that stuff is online. So we connect in that way. You know, I so is this like imagination R and D sort of? Like- sort of, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, uh, right. A, a asking people in these different fields and areas of practice to start imagining, well, what is it going to, what is your world going to look like? What is your practice going to look like in the future? And so, yeah, imagination R and D is actually a really good way of putting it. Um, so copyright Cody Half Moon. There you go. I'm right. just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, I'll show you your desk after this, this recording's over. Um, yeah, I'll have my people go with your people. <laughs> <laughs> so we try to connect with different uh, different audiences on lots of different levels. So we've also done a bunch of informal STEM learning stuff. We had this big uh, project on the bicentennial of Frankenstein, the novel by Mary Shelley. I, think oh, I love that book. Scientific yeah. creativity and responsibility. This was so great. And this was we did a what big, a good fun book! Wait a second. So, how did you connect that one? I'm a I was a lit major, and I did a thesis on that book. Oh, we, we, I mean, we could we could spend the whole hour talking about Frankenstein. Uh, but keep going. <laughs> I'm so, curious how you connected that with the imagination. So it's about uh, scientific creativity and responsibility, and thinking mm, about the relationship mm-hmm. between creativity and responsibility. So interesting. Uh, the you know that book and. Mary Shelley, the, the history of how she wrote it, she was really interested in all of these philosophical ideas, uh, you know, notions of selfhood and agency and identity, interested in things like, you know, slavery um, and also the origins of life, you know, at this. And her mother, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, probably inspired a lot of that, too. What an amazing feminist writer. Absolutely. And she, Mary Shelley or Mary Godwin, as she was known when she was yeah. a kid, she spent all of her time hanging out at her mother's gravestone and reading yeah. her mother's books. Her mother, Mary uh, Wollstonecraft, died after ch- giving birth to Mary. And so that she had this sort of shadow or the ghost of her mother, the spirit mm-hmm. of her mother was with her throughout her life. Uh, and this whole idea of life and death and literary creation and biological creation, Mary Shelley's own really hard life as a writer yeah. and a woman in that era. It's an amazing story. What I really love about Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's novel, is that it became an instant modern myth. You know, even mm-hmm. if you've never read the book, you know the story. You've seen it in a movie or a TV show, or you've worn a Halloween costume, you've eaten the breakfast cereal, you've got the lunchbox, and Frankenstein <laughs> is everywhere. Uh, and so... <laughs> Why, right? Why, why did, why, and how did Mary Shelley so perfectly latch into this this collective imagination and set of anxieties we have? One thing that I learned in the project is that Victor Frankenstein, the character, predates the first emergence of the word scientist by a, a little under twenty years. I did not know so that. Before wow. we had the scientist as a word, we had this flawed, you know, mad scientist character, Victor Frankenstein. So that book Best is, portrayed by Mel Brooks's movie, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the only <laughs> accurate portrayal of what the only is. one I'll accept. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, this is a story about our anxieties about science, about human agency playing God, creativity and responsibility. And you know, this is a story that was science fiction when it was written, but it's kind of not anymore. You know, there are high school students making genetically engineered 
organisms every year. And so... Well, and villainizing the unknown is something that even like our and astronomy we come across because I know like Frankenstein's monster was this horrible villain. You read the book, he's a freaking sweetheart reading Paradise Lost and hanging out with blind men and, you know, wanting to learn about the world. And he was sort of turned uh, sour because everyone vilified this amazing, amazing creation, which I love that you connected that with your your program. And I, I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. It was, really we experienced fun. it a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so it was like, well, what does this book have to tell us about the next 200 years, right? How can we keep learning from this story? So we did a, there's a, we did an annotated edition of Frankenstein annotated for scientists, engineers, and creators of all kinds. Uh, so I'm about to Google that. Go check is that, that available? Out. You can, it's available. You can, you can buy it. It's also the whole book is open access at frankenbook.org. And you can add your own annotations there if you want to and see, we have all of the stuff from the print book and more stuff, including some really cool videos, these sort of animated shorts where we interview different researchers about the contemporary implications of Frankenstein and fields like synthetic biology and AI. Um, and a bunch of additional annotations. So that was super fun. Amazing. And we had this National Science Foundation project to take these central questions, the, the Frankenstein myth, and think about science ethics. Uh, in we partnered with uh, 51 different science centers and museums around the country, and we made our mm. own, you know, alternate reality sort of modern day Frankenstein story. It was the some... modern, modern Prometheus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Honestly. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Sorry. I a total lit nerd. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess this is, this is available. If you go to csi.asu.edu, lots of acronyms in there, but we love our acronyms <laughs> here at Lowell. Uh, you know, this is, this book, this annotated book is available with some really cool cover art too. Yeah. I love the, the book design that they did, uh, our publishers at MIT Press. Um, and that website, we have tons of other stuff, you know, that book, well, I, that book and most of the things we do, we try to make totally freely available. So, uh, some things you can also, that book you can buy if you want to buy a copy, uh, and support the, the editors in that way, but you can also just read it for free. Um, a lot of our stuff is really only available as a free ebook. And then some things are available as a free ebook and you can also do a print on demand version if you want to. We'll right. be sure to share that on the discord for star stuff. That's, that's so cool. Yeah, let's just spend the next hour talking about uh, Frankenstein. I would be so down with that. All these, uh, all these ways that we're connecting, you know, imagination and, and uh, the humanities to, to science in general. I mean, uh, I guess a question that I don't know if I've ever thought about, uh, but I'd be curious to hear your answer, Ed, is uh, how common is the use of imagination in everyday life? That's a great question, too. I think we use imagination all the time, but we often don't recognize it as such. And it's almost like the light switch. You flip the light switch, you don't think about it at all, but this miraculous electricity floods through the circuits and things happen. We are so desensitized to the incredible technological, you know, depth and infrastructure of the world around us that we don't really even think about it. 
until it turns until the lights go out, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, it was, it was really nice when that light switch worked. Really nice when the yeah. water came out of the tap. That was cool. I miss it. I miss it a lot. Uh, and imagination works like that too. We imagine things all the time. We imagine things, hopefully, when we're looking forward to something, we imagine things out of anxiety and fear. Yeah, I was going to say, when the lights go out, my imagination is sparked quite a bit. Right. Yeah. And, and a lot of times now, especially as our lives are more mediated and you can occupy every single second of free time with your smartphone or your device, we're really letting other people program our imaginations a lot more. So I'm really interested in how we, we you know, humans have always wanted to inhabit these imagined places and story worlds. And we, we infuse the real with the magical, right? We imagine things happening or you see a stranger sit down at the coffee shop and you imagine a whole backstory for them. Uh, but, you know, there are, there are dark sides to this too, where you can see, you know, politically in the US, it's like we're living in these entirely different story worlds right now. People mm -hmm. can see the same piece of information and, and have completely different imaginary reactions to it. Very imaginative at yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think sometimes about the, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of dark arts of imagination, people who are using, we all Ooh. have these imaginative capacities and people who are I like that. leveraging them, right, to... Uh, to achieve some nefarious end. So this is another reason why I think it's important for us to make imagination more visible, become more aware of this capacity that's running in the background all the time. So you can start to recognize when somebody's trying to manipulate you, right? Or, mm -hmm. or use your own imagination against you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm writing down the dark arts of imagination. I don't know if you want to take the chance now to copyright that. That might be the title <laughs> of the episode. It's really good. Yeah. It's a, I'm something I'm really interested in. I haven't figured out how to do this yet, but I, I want to think about this as a lens for contending with disinformation and misinformation. I think You're an author, aren't you? Did oh, I make yes. that up? <laughs> yeah, that's the title of your next book, my friend. I would buy right. that off yourself right away. You should write, you should write that down. <laughs> Honestly. But thanks, Cody. Um, Let me take some notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I do have a question um, about imagination. I feel like this is probably geared more towards Todd, but Ed, feel free to chime in. Um, but I was wondering, how much of a role do you think imagination plays in bringing people through the doors of Lowell Observatory night, night after night? Kind of going back to something I, I mentioned um, about lesson building, you know, getting kids to cross that that invisible boundary of what they know, they already think they know, and what they don't know, and getting those questions to bridge that boundary. And I feel like the people that walk through the door at the observatory are brought in because of the grand ideas of, of you know, basically from questions about the universe. Like, where does the universe, does the universe stop? Does it have a boundary? Are we alone? What happens when we go into a, a wormhole or get too close to a black hole? These questions that don't have like an immediate answer uh, spark all kinds of answers, I'm sure, in your mind. And you want to know how close to reality is that is my answer to what the scientists are, are finding. And so I think it plays a huge role. And I think we don't give it enough credit. I think it's amazing because you know, I guess, Todd, like you said, we kind of touched on this earlier, but um, these kids come in with all of 
these imaginative things. Or like Haley said, they'll, they're usually the first to ask a really interesting question. Um, it's kind of like living proof that imagination shouldn't die when you reach a certain age or have a certain amount of bills. Like yeah. um, they ask these questions, you know, what happens when you, you know, go through a wormhole. And I, I love that the answer is like, oh man, we think this, maybe this, what do you think would happen? You know, that kind of thing to like, let them know that there's still so much left to discover and imagine. And especially in this day and age when we have so many like, toxic narratives and you know, nihilism and that kind of thing, we just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, which, you know, I know we just talked about in our previous episodes, but um, the potential that we have for discovery is incredible. And if they can get like a taste of that at Lowell, I think we've done our job. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'll, I'll take this next question here. I'm <laughs> kind of excited about it. I'm stealing it from Todd. He wrote it. Um, but he and I have similar thoughts. So I guess, Todd, you are also a Star Trek fan? Um, yes, and probably more on the Star Wars side. So to me, I think for this question, it could be interchangeable. Oh, okay. don't say that to the fans. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, okay, you're more into fantasy. I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for, um, yeah, so like watching uh, shows like Star Trek, uh, there's definitely an overlap here of what you can imagine and what, you know, actually happens. Like they're, uh, the way that they communicate with each other is the modern day cell phone. They had flat screens. They had video calls, obviously space travel, which we're still working toward. Um, Haley let us know in a previous episode that the James Webb Space Telescope was at one point called the Next Generation Space Telescope. Um, which I just want to call it anyway, because that's super cool. But Star Trek <laughs> has had such a profound impact on what we can imagine uh, from like Gene Rod- Roddenberry's imagination. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, we just we see that and we want it. I mean, it looks like this utopia. They don't have to deal with money. Uh, mm-hmm. They can, you know, um, automatically call Earl Grey tea when they want. Um, All the tea. How f- yeah, hot. Um, <laughs> how far away is this type of space future do you think that's a really good question i think that the you know the most magical thing in the star trek universe is probably faster than light travel and like with so many space shows you it just makes the world building so much more exciting if you can you get can there do that right you can get there exactly yeah so i'm not sure how close we are to that you know <laughs> might need to might need to yeah, do a little bit more point. fundamental research and uncover yeah, those mysteries of the, the quantum universe. But a lot of other stuff, you know, I think what a lot of people respond to in Star Trek is actually not te- technological futures, it's social futures. It's a utopia because it's this post-capitalist society where we've eliminated racism, we've eliminated a lot of the, the fundamental uh, social ills that that plague us in the 20th and 21st century, but they're not completely gone. And one of the things that makes Star Trek fun is that it shows how that history still over, you know, still lingers with humanity. And we have those time travel episodes where people go back in time and confront the challenges of the 20th, 20th century or 21st century. And they also, like with all science fiction, project 
our challenges in the present into the future. And they do that when they visit other star systems and planets and they contend with these problems elsewhere. And so Star Trek has always played this really interesting social progress role. And I love this story uh, in the, in the, with the original Star Trek, uh, Michelle Norris played uh, Mm -hmm. Nohura. uh, She was one of the first uh, black women, African-American women to play a role like this on television. And this was an interracial cast. And the whole point of the show was that that wasn't even really relevant, right? That wasn't really part of the story. And uh, she was for various reasons thinking of leaving the show because, you know, that she felt like she wasn't being treated that well on set, that maybe racism was a factor there. I'm not, you know, I'm not a historian of this story, so you can check your facts on this listener, but this is the gist of it. And um, the part of it that I remember is that Martin Luther King Jr. was a Star Trek fan precisely mm-hmm. because it was portraying this future where the moral arc of the universe is, you know, getting better. And he convinced her to stay on the show, you know, to say like young, Black children need to see you need to see this role model there. So to me, that's what's really compelling about Star Trek and the tricorders and the phasers and the all of the different technologies they have. The transporters are amazing and they're part of the hook that gets you into the show. But I think a lot of what makes it compelling on an ongoing basis is it's it's a show about characters, right? And these characters are human and they're we get to imagine this is the power of a really good story, good science fiction story, a really good story about the future is not, it's not a set of blueprints, though I did have that book of all the blueprints of the Star Trek stuff when I was a kid. I loved it. But it's not, <laughs> nice. it's not a stack of blueprints. What makes it compelling and, and a great invitation is that we get to imagine ourselves as people living in this future. What is it going to feel like to be in that future? Not just what is it going to look like or what buttons can you push? Mm-hmm. And I love that it keeps it human too. Like, um, you know, so many, I'm thinking of the original series, but like so many of the, um, planets that they came upon and they're like, oh, they're so backwards and we've progressed so much. And it's reflecting uh, a present day scenario, or I guess present day, six, 1960s, 1970s. And unfortunately still 2020s, um, where they're like, wow, they just, they haven't progressed. They haven't gotten to the point where they know we should just love each other and be great to each other. And, um, how can they not know this? You know, um, I always liked it when they kind of did that sort of ironic twist to the audience is like, this is primitive. We could do better. I feel bad saying this, but I never actually really got into Star Trek. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't with Todd. You can be part of the Star Wars contingent. Yeah. I didn't get into Star Wars either. Um, you're just, I know. You're just I, a math nerd through and through. I really am. But um, what I do know about Star Trek is uh, a lot of the stuff that they did were um, in other galaxies, right? They traveled to other galaxies. Um, but the more research we achieve here, Uh, actually shows us that there's a ton out in our own solar system that we need to explore, right? So um, what are your guys' thoughts on uh, like exploration of our solar system? I think it's a great point because sometimes we're so eager to get out there. And like, you you know, Ed, you mentioned like faster than light travel, like we have to get there to experience this. But, you know, I think, you know, to Haley's point, the more we find out what's in our own home, i.e. like our solar system, there's so much here to imagine and 
and wonder about? Um, we've always been interested in space futures, and we have a few different projects that touch on that. Um, but before I talk about that, I just have to briefly mention The Expanse, the TV series that just- Oh my gosh. Out, which is a really yep. interesting solar system future story. Okay, it does have a little magical hand wavy, you know, darkness <laughs> and stuff happening too. But uh-huh. but it's it starts out as a vision of what a, a very technically grounded, physically plausible, realistic human solar system uh, civilization would look like. And also Kim Stanley Robinson wrote this great utopia novel, 2312, that imagines a human solar system civilization. Okay, I'll we'll have to read that. Um, so the the one project that I'll talk about, I'll talk uh, probably about this when I actually go up there uh, this weekend too, is called Visions, Ventures, Escape Velocities. This is another book you can find on our website. But this is a project that we did as a NASA research project on space futures and specifically on what's going to happen when commercial activity starts to to become more prevalent in space mm-hmm. and it's happening it's happening right now yeah. right yeah and what can we learn what what are, what, are, what policy questions do we need to be thinking about so the basic premise of that project and the book was the technical problems that we will encounter in space you know they're significant and there will there will be new ones but we also we know how to do it we know how to go to space We've known how to go to space for 60 years. And so the question no longer is, can we do it or how do we do it? The question really becomes, why are we going to go? What are we going to do there? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to insure it? All of these yeah. questions. Are, <laughs> God, insurance. Uh, never yeah. thought of that. Space well, insurance. This is, this, is how, this is how it becomes business, right? This is how it becomes part of the... So the a line that we have in our introduction is that space is a canvas for human imagination, which I think I've stolen already for this talk. But yeah. uh, <laughs> that... The what happens when space becomes a a, a, pl- a a place where humans dwell, right? Where we hang out, mm-hmm. we live. People might have kids. Where mm-hmm. there's just the, it becomes woven into the fabric of human activity. And you could think about satellites and low Earth orbit as a way in which we've already started to extend this web of human activity out, you know, off the off the mm-hmm. surface of our planet. And so. Those are questions about, well, why do, why do people do stuff and how do we make sense of space no longer just as this incredibly dangerous, expensive set of scientific missions where only people working for major governments are going to go? Mm-hmm. What happens when it's you know uh, a place people might go for fun or to seek a better life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that also brings all of our problems with us, right? So who's going to go mm-hmm. and are, is it going to be like prior eras of exploration where uh, the the elites are reaping the benefits and lots of other people are suffering, mm-hmm. taking risks or shortening their lives or dying for the benefit of those elites. What can we learn from prior eras of exploration? Um, but it was a really fun project and we were thinking about low earth orbit. We had these four areas, low earth orbit, uh, asteroids and resource extraction from asteroids, Mars and exoplanets. And so mm-hmm. we have a set of stories and nonfiction essays by space experts, historians, and economists, and psychologists exploring all of the ways in which this feels totally new, but it's also not new. And we've done things like this before, and we can learn from prior eras of human history to think about how we should do this this time. I have a you know really quick question for you. Uh... Ed, uh, you know, before we run out of time, but um, uh, as a non-research scientist, 
what what part can I or people like me, you know, a lot of our, our listeners, you know, what what part can we play in imagining these space futures? So I think that as we're seeing more and more commercial activity in space, that, and, and not just commercial, but let's just say non-governmental, more open access, and as it's getting cheaper to send stuff into space, really amazing things can start to happen. There are elementary school students who have designed and built satellites that have gotten launched into space. Uh, there's this uh, project that we were collaborators on, this, this group called the Mexican Space Collective. That was a group of artists in Mexico that designed and launched uh, a satellite into space. So there are some very real ways in which motivated groups of people could get very hands-on and actually do, do stuff that's space activity, space science. Uh, but I think also thinking about the space futures that we want, and that is everything from, well, what happens if we get internet to every single corner of this planet? And how could we use that to make the world a more equitable and inclusive place to... Well, maybe we shouldn't be putting thousands and thousands of satellites up there and, you know, it's going to be a lot of space junk and, you know, thinking about uh, things like what relationship do we want to have with these new these planets, uh, orbits, and, you know, maybe we shouldn't be thinking about them just in terms of resource extraction. You know, should we learn from prior eras when we thought about, say, the American Southwest as like, oh, sure, we're just going to mine it all and we're going to make lots of money. It's going to be great. Um, you know, think about, uh, uh, or we're going to cut down all the trees. Are we going to build all these railroads? Not, no, not you. You don't have to build the railroad. We'll bring right, you, right, you know right. other people yeah. here to build the railroad, right? How do we? It's um, our chance to be cool. <laughs> yeah, right, right. How do we? What is, what is a, a a more just future look like in space? And that's a really interesting question. That we need way more voices in the conversation. Uh, you know that, uh, and so I think. Um, one of the things I learned from our Frankenstein project also is this idea of efficacy. So not just agency, which is that you feel like you you have power, but efficacy, just just the sense that you you have the basic knowledge, you can participate in the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we get more people to feel like they can participate in these conversations? And science fiction is actually a great way to invite everybody into these discussions and debates about how we should be living in space. Uh, because even the, the scientists and engineers will say, well, like, oh, I can't, I don't do the ethics stuff. And the ethicists will say, well, like, I'm not a roboticist. You know, I can't answer these questions for you. And the policy person will say, like, well, I don't understand any of the science. And the legislator will say, like, you know, I don't get, I don't get any of that stuff. So I guess we'll have to work together. Right. Yeah. A, a wow. good story can Ooh, put everybody, everybody on the <laughs> same page, right? A good story, everybody can read it and you can have you can, it gives everybody some mental furniture. You can move around the room to say like, well, you know, I really disagreed with where the couch is. The couch is in the wrong place. Or like, why is this, why, why can only this person use this technology in the story? Or why does it have to be in the kitchen? It gives us some, some concrete things to talk about, right? In, a, in the safe place, the mental holodeck of imagination where you're not talking about the real world. It's all still pretend, but it's a access, it's a way for us to have these conversations more productively than we do sometimes when everybody's in their trenches and they're just lobbing grenades over the over the wall. Make us bickering married couples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the knives go downward in the dishwasher, not upward. <laughs> well, um, we are out of time today. We didn't get to all our questions. I don't think we ever do. <laughs> but Never. Yes. It's a good time, I think. 
It is. It really is. Yeah. Um, I would like to remind y'all listening uh, to check out our Twitter and Discord channel. Um, and if you have any questions, not just about this episode and what we talked about here, but about anything at all, uh, go ahead and use the hashtag ask star stuff. Each letter or each word is capitalized. Ask star stuff uh, so that we can address your questions in our next episode. Yes. And thank you for listening. And thanks, everyone, for joining in on the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Ed, we'll see you on the 16th. Excited. Yeah, totally. Wow, this was really fun. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 